Have you ever read a self-help book? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Well, you need to. No. Why? Okay. It's great. Why why not? I think they just, a lot of them just sound gross. Think better and feel better and do better and everything in the world will be better. And that's just hasn't been my experience. And so I think I'm enough of a contrarian that I read the highlights of what a, I think a self-help book is. And I go, mm, no, thanks. That's not going to help. You're just going to read the uh, the spark notes or the cliff notes. and uh, Or sometimes it's just looking at a cover and going, that book's not for me. Yeah, yeah. So I think there are a lot of people like that, honestly. I mean, it's funny that you would say that out loud. It doesn't surprise me. But I think there are a lot of people who would just say, yeah, I think I'm kind of, um, I'm done with all the how to make my life, you know, better in three easy steps books. Um, so if I were to then tell our listeners that we're going to, we're going to talk to somebody about this idea of time management, I could almost, I can almost hear people going, I'm with Tori, boo, hiss. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> except all you need is about 30 seconds with our guest before you realize, oh, okay, here we go. This is going to be different. So different. And in fact, he even made the joke of, I think on Amazon, there's over 60,000 books on time management and productivity out there. And so the question was like, so why did you write one? Yeah. And it was kind of in response to everything I've read hasn't actually helped what I'm feeling in my soul. Yeah. Because they're missing such an integral part. What intrigued me was he said, I haven't found any of those books that ever really traced it back to the most productive life that was ever lived. And then he's very blunt about how Jesus navigated things. And it isn't like a Bible verse by Bible verse, sort of a time management formula, but I love that it's grounded in scriptural truth and specifically in the person of Jesus. Okay, so we're talking about Jordan Rayner, who is this serial entrepreneur that we're referring to, podcast host. He's the author of the book that 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 we're talking about, Redeeming Your Time. Um, and he's also he a Google fellow is is on his resume as well. Um, and you were telling me he's been twice selected as a Google fellow. That's what his bio said. It wasn't just a one-time thing. Google yeah. Google told him. He was doing pretty cool things on two different occasions, which Google has never told me that. No, and he downplayed it, but I'm like, wow, okay, that's pretty cool. But I love the subtitle of this book, which is really going to help you because it's Seven Biblical Principles for Being Purposeful, Present, and Wildly Productive. He is wildly passionate about being wildly productive. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. This will be a fun one for you listeners to hear. Of you can just tell this is not this is not just like Jordan going on a book tour and giving the highlights of what his publicist told him to say and you know plug this chapter no. of this is this <laughs> yeah, is no. Jordan just living and breathing and what falls out of that is this passion that you just really can't contain and you guys will pick up on that it's pretty great yeah yeah and I love that coupled with that passion and that oomph is grace again and again and again, even at the very end, what he says to his girls, 
it's just soaked in grace, what he tells them every night before they go to bed. So since this is about time management, I'm going to manage my time well here and say, I think we've set this up enough for you. I want to just jump in to this conversation that we had recently with Jordan Rayner. Jordan, I just wanted to, first of all, thank you for being with us. Um, and there's there's just a lot I want to talk to you about in no particular order. So I hope you're okay <laughs> with like a free-ranging conversation. I like no particular order. Those okay, are the best okay. conversations. Yeah. So um, um, first of all, you're a social entrepreneur. I like – I love the sound of that. I've used that term before. I want to know what that is. And I want to know how a social entrepreneur becomes – a Google fellow. I don't even know what that is, but that just sounds very interesting to me. So give us the background of Jordan Rayner and then how do those things fit together? What what is what's going on with you? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm asking myself that question all the time. <laughs> yeah, so I spent the first 10 years of my career full-time focused uh on this world of of tech entrepreneurship. I still have a foot in that world. I serve as executive chairman uh, of a decent sized tech startup that I used to run as CEO. Um, but today I'm spending the majority of my time, I really view myself as a content entrepreneur, creating books mm. and podcasts and a bunch of other resources helping Christians connect the gospel to their work. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that world of tech entrepreneurship is so very interesting to me because I think that if we are going to be effective at the Great Commission, in this next generation, we got to re-embrace the first commission and the call to create because yeah, this generation of nuns isn't walking into a church for the first time to learn who Jesus is. So where are they going to see him? They're going to see him in culture and the arts and movies and businesses that are reflecting the glory of God, right? And so that's why I'm so, fa so passionate about that space of tech specifically and more generally, this call to create. And yeah, the Google Fellowship thing, uh, man, it was just a super fun, really cool experience. It sounds fancier than it is, honestly. Basically, it was Google saying, hey, we think you're really smart and doing really cool things with our tools. So here's backend access to a lot of our stuff. Go make more cool stuff. It was awesome. This was during my um the early part of my career when I was doing tech stuff in the political and government markets and Google has a, a really significant interest in that space. So I got to work with some of the smartest people at Google on solving some problems in that world. Okay. So I, I, um, I, I appreciate you saying it's not that cool, but then what you said was really cool, Jordan. So I'm not buying any of it because uh, to date, I don't know, Tori, uh, help me with this, but I don't think Google has said, <laughs> You're really smart and we want to give you more stuff to help like change the so anyway. Um he, here's the thing though. Um when when we talk about entrepreneurial things, I love that you're connecting. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like you're almost connecting this back really to early Genesis. I mean, we are made in the image of a of a creator who, you know, we're the we should be passionate about creating beauty and interest and difference-making things in this world. Am I stretching that too far? You're, you're not putting words in my mouth at all. I've said these words. You know, okay, before okay. God tells us that he is loving, before he tells us that he is holy, before he tells us that he is omnipotent, 
The first thing he wanted us to know about him is that he is the creator yes. God. Yes. It's like, yes. And then, oh, by the way, in Genesis 126, when he says, hey, we're going to make mankind in our image, we basically only know one thing about the image of God is that he is a working, creative mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, just to go down a fun little sidetrack here. This is unique in the history of world religions. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Every other religion says the gods created human beings to do the menial, lowly work of that's the world right. to serve the gods. Only Christianity starts with a God who works to serve us. Yeah. If that doesn't give dignity yeah. to the work that you're doing in this world with your hands, with your mind, whatever, I don't know what does. Yeah. Well, and um, – some of our listeners will know this from, from some stuff that I've said, but I think being made in the image of God is a statement of human dignity and responsibility. It's yes. both of those. And so as an entrepreneur, you know, okay, well, let's startups. Let's just talk about startups for a second. There is a beauty, I'm sure, and an, an excitement to a startup endeavor. But there has to be just a complete, unique set of challenges and problems that you're also facing at the same time. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. I, I mean, startups are one of the riskiest things in the world. And connecting this all back to Genesis 1, I like how you already made that connection, Greg. Some of us understand that God was the creator God. I would even go so far as to say, and not just me, Tim Keller has said this, that God was the first entrepreneur. Right? Like, what is an entrepreneur? An entrepreneur is somebody who takes a risk to create something new for the good of others, right? Look at Genesis 1. Clearly, God created new things, right? Uh, clearly, he created for the good of others. God had no need to create. So why did he do it? I think he did it for the pure joy of doing it and to share his love and glory with us. Now, did God take a risk? Man, now we're getting into some right. tricky theological territory. But not risk is we yeah, define we it, but if you if you use a, a similar word of sacrifice, I think he did. God created the world knowing what Absolutely. human beings would do, knowing that we would sin and it was going to require that he murder his son on our behalf. And he still did it in mm. order to share his glory and his love with us. So when I think about that as an entrepreneur, yeah, it's hard. It's super hard work. It's super risky. You know, one day you could be at the top of this roller coaster and the next day it could feel like the business is going to shut down. But knowing that I'm made in the image of a God who risks and sacrifice in order to share love with others, that enables me to take greater swings. Knowing that because of his sacrifice, I can never lose anything ultimately because even if my venture fails, even if I die, I'm secure in Christ. Okay, let's 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 move it into um big deep those big deep waters. Um, let's let's come back into some practical things because you're right. God enters into this knowing what it will cost him. It will cost him everything. You're entering into this knowing it will cost you things. I mean, logically any anyone, you know, moving into startup land knows it's going to cost them. But when it gets to this uh I don't know what to call it, a work life balance. I want to get to some of the stuff that you've that you've been writing recently, but there is a cost involved there that is I think really dangerous if you don't pay attention to some of this going in. Can can we begin to to talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I I think startup world, but I I don't think just startups. I think kind of our modern 
work culture celebrates, over celebrates, over idolizes hustle. Yeah. Work as hard as you can, work nonstop. Um, and not only is this out of line with the image of God who works hard six days and rests one, it's also not effective, right? There's a really good study uh, that came out of Stanford in the last few years that showed that working more than, I think it was 55 hours, right? Um, there's like no more productivity, true productivity gained in that 56th and 60th and 70th hour of work. Your, your brain just can't do it, right? And again, as Christians, that, that shouldn't surprise us. We used to call that the point of diminishing returns. That's it. So That's you're just exactly you're past it, and and it's not only is it not worth it, it's it's now retroactively costing you things. Yeah, it can be counterproductive. Yeah. I mean, at a minimum, it's not incrementally more productive. But I do think there are extremes to where overwork is making us less productive the rest of the time. I, I talk about this in my in my book, Redeeming Your Time. Rest is counterintuitively one of the most productive things we can do. Not over rest, right? But number one, taking breaks throughout a workday, right? There's lots of science on this and how it makes us more productive. Number two, getting an eight-hour nightly sleep opportunity, which sounds insane, but the science is totally indisputable. And then finally, number three, weekly Sabbath. Not a lot of data here, but there's enough that we can point to to say that Sabbath is productive for not just our souls, but also for the goals that we're chasing after throughout the week. Yeah. So we're almost now into the content of the book, but what you're describing is what you call productive rest. Yeah. Which is to go back to your, uh, your, your thought about us being us overemphasizing hustle. Productive rest almost sounds like jumbo shrimp. It almost sounds like it doesn't fit together. But it, but it really does. And it's not just, ooh, I'm tired. I got to catch my breath. It's, it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah, totally. It, it is resting enough to where your soul <laughs> can rest uh, as well as your body. You know, one of my, I, I, I think one of the easiest places to see how rest is productive is in the, in the lane of sleep. It's a fun story. I like to tell about Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. Um, Richards would always sleep with a guitar and a tape recorder next to his bed, just in case, you know, woke up in the middle of the night, got an idea, he'd write it down. And um, this one night he goes to sleep in Clearwater, Florida, wakes up the next morning, and his tape recorder had run all the way to the end. He's like, that's weird. I, I don't remember anything. I don't remember waking up recording anything. So he goes back, he rewinds the tape, he presses play, and unconsciously in his sleep, Keith Richards wrote the first verse and chorus of Satisfaction, the, great, <laughs> the, the Rolling Stones' greatest hit of all time. And sleep scientists will tell you this is not at all a unique occurrence. Uh, our lives won't look that dramatic, uh, but all of us as we sleep are making creative connections subconsciously that our conscious minds couldn't make. And that makes us way more productive right. the next day for the creative problems we're trying to solve at work. Right, right. So w w here we are, we're coming out of this two and a half year, whatever it's been, okay? I'm not going to use the word unprecedented, but whatever it's been. And there is, obviously, there's the, the, the trends are that, you know, we see the stats of 
more people working from home, more people telecommuting, all of this. I, I can't help but wonder as that happens, if there's a new blurred boundary that you have to kind of pay attention to. I've talked to people who for the longest time, like for years, have worked from home. You know, these are salespeople and other people who just do, you know, they just work from home. And they figured that rhythm out a long time ago. But then there are other folks that are just moving into landing into this space. One of the ironies I've heard is, so I started doing this from home because I thought it would be easier and I thought it would be more restful. And like the opposite is happening. The key word is boundaries, right? Working from home can be a great blessing if boundaries are really well defined by you and or your boss, right? Um, and I think boundaries in a couple of practical senses. Number one, boundaries around when you're working at your job and when you're working on your family, I think is really critical. Uh, for me, my, my hard, bright line boundaries are 7.45 a.m. to 5 o'clock p.m. Period. I never check an email. I never do an ounce of work outside of those hours, right? Uh, and by the way, even when I was reporting to a board as a CEO, I was very strict about those boundaries. And number two, boundaries around when we check incoming messages. I think this is probably the number one culprit. I use this analogy in the book that I, I think is really apt. You know, the, the, imagine if the mailman started coming to your house 150 times a day. Yeah, my dog would lose its mind, by the way, if that <laughs> happened, but yeah. But he gets out of his car, he comes to your doorbell, he rings the doorbell, and you get up from whatever you're doing. <laughs> right, right. You know, maybe right. you open the mail, maybe you don't, but at a minimum, you still glance at the subject line of who it's from. This is what we're doing, and it's certifiably crazy. That's a great image. I would check you, Greg, into a mental institute if I knew you were doing that with the mailman. Why aren't we doing this with text messages and emails? And here's the good news, right? It's actually very simple to solve this problem. I've helped literally now thousands of people in group coaching scenarios solve this problem. And number one, never miss anything urgent. I've never heard somebody miss anything urgent. And number two, do their work a heck of a lot more productively with a lot less anxiety. So here it is. Three steps. Okay. Three steps. Number one, you choose ahead of time when you're going to check your messages, not the mailman, right? And some people are going to have to check their messages a heck of a lot more frequently than others. You know, as a writer, I, I check my email, my texts once a day. That doesn't work for salespeople and customer service. That's fine. What matters is that you're picking ahead of time when you're going to check your messages. 10 a.m., 12 p.m., 2 p.m., 4 p.m., whatever. It doesn't matter. Step two, make a list of VIPs that can have access to you any time of the day, not just those predetermined times. So for me, my VIPs are um, my fellow board members of this tech startup I'm a board member on, my wife, my kid's school, my assistant. That's pretty much it. And what you do, you add those people to your favorites list on your iPhone or your people list on an Android device, put your phone on do not disturb so that calls and only calls, not text messages, not emails, not anything else from those people and those people alone will come through when you're trying to be focused on your family and on your work. Finally, step three, after you've checked, decided when you're going to check your messages, after you've made your list of VIPs, the final step is just simply communicating expectations to those VIPs, sending them a text or an email saying this, saying, hey, um, 
I'm trying to be more focused on my work and more focused at home. Uh, so from now on, I'm only going to be checking my emails and texts at X, Y, and Z times. However, you're a VIP in my life. So if you need to get a hold of me outside of those times, do not text me. <laughs> do not email me. But if you call me on my cell, I'll answer every is. single time I can. Yeah. If you do yeah. those three steps, it's game over. Game over. Yeah. You're going to be fully focused at home, fully focused at work, doing your work. A, a lot of people are reporting me doing their work twice as fast with a lot less anxiety. It's a game changer. Yeah, I'm, I love that you mentioned anxiety there at the end. Because I think as you're describing this in my own life, when I have been more proactive and intentional about this, it just, it feels different deep in your chest because now I'm in charge of this. I realize I'm not in charge of the world, but there are details over which I am in charge. I get to control yes. this to a certain extent. And it, it does, Jordan, I completely agree. It addresses a weird sort of what I would just call a diffused anxiety cloud that just just lives in the room with us. Yes. You know why? I, I've been thinking a lot about this and talking to a lot of people about this. I think it's because every new message, every new email, every new text forces you to redecide whether the thing you're working on right now is the thing you should be working on right now. Mm. If I'm drafting a proposal or a PowerPoint deck or playing with my kids, and I hear a ding on my phone, subtly, very subconsciously, I'm questioning, do I need to do that or do I need to stay focused on this? It's insane. And we have to cut it out if we want to do our most exceptional work at the office and at home. Yeah. Well, man, we've been all over this, but let's let's go into it now because you've been referencing this book that I think is so beautifully practical. And I was just telling Tori, our producer, that it's just even the steps that you describe they are winsome. They're like, oh, wait, I want to know a little bit more about that. So where did you get this idea for your book, Redeeming Time? All right. So there's 60,000 time management books on Amazon right now. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. That's an actual that. literal number. And I've read pretty much all the perennial bestsellers in this category. Um, but I had two major problems with the books in this genre. Number one, they tend to be centered on what I call workspace productivity, right? The message is, hey, you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed. Uh, follow the author system. You got to do it all, by the way, and you have to do it perfectly. And then at the end of the road, you're going to find peace, right? Yeah. How many of us have done that and like not felt a sense of peace? Yeah. No, I feel anxiety because I didn't quite measure up. That's exactly right. I start, I think as Christians, we could start with the opposite premise, grace-based productivity. This idea that <laughs> Romans 5.1 Mm. Through Jesus Christ, I already have ultimate peace with God. Come I don't on. do time management exercises to get peace. I do them in response to the peace that is secure in Christ Jesus. And I just think that's a totally different way, life-giving, peaceful way of approaching this topic. So that was my first problem with these books. Is they didn't have that message. The second problem was... um. I've never read a time management book that accounts for how the author of time managed his time when he came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. This is crazy. Jesus, for 33 years, was confined to the same 24-hour day that you and I are confined to. 
And no, come on, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't show him with a to-do list or a smartwatch, but they do show him fighting distractions at work and seeking out solitude and trying to be busy without being hurried. And because he was infallible God, we know that he managed his time perfectly. Right, right. And I think when you read the Gospels through, for what they are, biographies of the life of Christ, I think you can see at least seven timeless time management principles from the life of Christ. And that's what redeeming your time is. It's these seven principles mapped to 32 hyper-practical practices to help us walk like Jesus walked today in our modern context. Okay, so I want to get into those, but what you're saying and what you what I what you say in this book is that Jesus was quite literally the most productive life ever lived. Jesus lived the most productive life ever lived. And we don't often say things that way. You know, I, I when you were talking, I think of uh Dallas Willard saying that Jesus was the wisest man who ever lived very close to this, but you're saying he was the most productive. And when you hear that, you're like, well, of course he was. And yet he still had to navigate the stuff that you were talking about. Yeah. It's because in our churches today, we talk almost exclusively about the fact that Jesus was hundred percent God, which of course he was. Nobody's disagreeing with this. You're right. But he was also 100% man. That's exact. Yes. He was also confined to one physical place at a time for 33 years. Think about this. We believe God is omnipresent, but Jesus chose not to be for 33 years. That's a wild idea, right? It means, as the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's right. Jesus had a craft, he had a job, and he had to steward competing demands for his time in a 24-hour day. How arrogant of us not to look to the Gospels for wisdom as to how to manage our time as his image bears in the world. Yeah. Well, every time I lose touch with everything you're describing about, it, it comes back to what you just said. It comes back to a, 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 a lack of trust that he knows better. And I start to take control of these things in weird ways. It never works out. So will you go through these, these seven steps? Because I'd love for people to just get a taste of this. And as always, we're going to put the details in the show notes because I think this is such a, a, I think it's just such a unique way to think about, as you said, time management, which has been spoken of by 60,000 authors. Authors. <laughs> And counting. Uh, yeah, so we'll run down the seven principles real quickly, but keep in mind, this is not the practical stuff. There's 32 practices underneath these seven principles that make this practical for you. But principle number one, start with the word, right? To redeem our time in the model of our redeemer, we got to start where Jesus started. He he prioritized time with the father above everything. We've got to do the same if we care about redeeming the time for eternal rather than temporal purposes, right? Principle number two, let your yes be yes, straight from the words of Jesus. Yeah, I've read a lot of time management books that tell you to ignore your current to-do list, just pick your big three things and get going. The problem is brain science doesn't work that way, right? Like your brain can't let go of the commitments that you've already made. And the problem is most of us are saying yes to a million different things in a million different places. Our starred emails, post-it notes, stuff running around in our heads. We've got to build what I call a commitment tracking system to ensure that our yes 
is yes, more times than not. Principle three, descent from the kingdom of noise. When you look at the gospels, the number of times you find Jesus holding away in solitude is staggering. He spent so much time alone. And I think it's because solitude is a prerequisite for good thought and creativity and communing with the father, right? Like if we want to like know what's important on our to-do lists, yeah, we probably need to get quiet and dissent for the kingdom of noise, right? Uh, and that's a precursor to principle number four, which is prioritize your yeses, right? Once we've made time for stillness and solitude, we've got to do what Jesus did. Take the long list of things we could do, prioritize it down to the list of things we think we should do in order to fulfill the work the father gave us to do. Principle five, accept your uni presence. We already talked about this this. for 30. We're making up words, right? Uh, We believe that Jesus for 33 years traded his godly omnipresence for the uni presence you and I experience today. The problem is we arrogant human beings refuse to accept that we can only be in one place at a time, right? And we got to learn to accept that. Principle six, embrace productive rest, which we've already talked about. And then finally, principle seven, eliminate all hurry stolen from Dallas Willard right. and John Mark Comer. But just this idea of embracing busyness. Busyness is a good thing. Jesus was crazy busy, so much so that he didn't eat one time and his parents, his sorry, his family said he was, quote, out of his mind. But he was never busy in a way that made him frantic or anxious or snapping at the other people in his life. And I think that's the line between busy and hurry. And so at the end of the book, this last principle I put all the pieces together and show readers how to have a busy yet unhurried life in the model of Jesus. So you you are giving us these principles, and I when I first saw them, I feel like they all flow one out of the other, and yeah, and they, that's intentional. Yeah. yeah, and you can just feel that there's a there's a foundational truth, and you keep building on these. Um, when you talked about the kingdom of noise, though, man, are we? ever ever in a time maybe like never before where this noise is so prevalent intrusive damaging all of those things tempting everything um can you give us just a a little bit more on how do we how do we turn the volume down on the noise. What does this mean when when you talk about you know dissenting from the kingdom of noise? I know you yeah yeah we could use a little more there. Yeah, let's just give away some of this practical stuff. Let's help some people. Um, First of all, let's define noise. Um, Obviously, I'm talking about external noise, the buzzing of our devices, nonstop news, whatever. But what I'm primarily concerned with is what all of that external noise creates, which is this internal noise. Yes. That blocks our ability to think and be creative and listen to the voice of God. There's There's a reason why... If you were to do a family feud survey of where do you have your most creative ideas, I guarantee you the number one answer is in the shower because it's the last place on earth not totally drenched in noise, (laughs) right? So practically, how do we do this? How do we descend? Uh, I'm going to start with the extreme and then move to the moderate. My favorite practice has been totally 100% turning off the news. I was a news junkie. From the seventh grade until about the age of, I don't know, 28, when I stopped consuming the news. And almost nothing has been more life-giving to me than 
totally turning off that channel. Uh, here's what I wish somebody had told me before I did it because I would have done it a lot sooner. When I stopped reading the news or listening to news, I mean, I, I'm talking about nothing, no, no podcast, anything. My friends started to unknowingly and willingly curate the news for me. They do it for me. I hear about everything that matters to my life and work. I hear about hurricanes. I live in Florida. That's pretty important to me. I hear about media trends. I hear about every uh, Taylor Swift album rumor because I'm a huge <laughs> closet Taylor Swift fan. Uh, and I hear about all those things without having to spend one moment waiting through the 99% of news content on social media and news websites that is totally irrelevant to my life right. and also anxiety inducing. Mm -hmm. Right Now, there are times when I wade back in, you know, for example, when things started to happen in the Ukraine, I got back in because I want to know what's going on in the world in really important moments like that. But those moments are really, really rare. And I get in and I get out. Otherwise, I will find myself sinking and suffocating in the quicksand that is digital news services. Right. So that's one practice. Just let your friends curate the news for you. Uh, a more moderate approach is to stop swimming in infinity pools of content. Infinity pools are Instagram stories and news websites that seamlessly scroll from one meaningless story to the next without you even having to click, right? Opt for finite pools of content. Don't go on Instagram stories. Just confine yourself to the feed or uh, subscribe to a news roundup podcast or email or heaven forbid at the risk of sounding like I'm 90, read a physical newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> do they still have those? I think they okay, do. All right. Uh, but you know, it, there's a, in this world, there's a lot of beauty in that New York times masthead, which says it's all the news that's fit to print. It's a fit in a confined box. That's beautiful. If you want to dissent from the kingdom of noise. So it, 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 it we're back to it being intentional. We're back to be it being proactive. We're back to you making choices. But as you were talking and you're talking about how this turns down the internal noise, it seems to me like now we're, now you're almost defining the difference between hurried and busy. Because when I'm really feeling hurried, it's because things are very loud inside my head. Hmm. Interesting. And what you're saying is if we turn the volume down and things come down, I can still be incredibly busy, yeah. but I'm not quite as pushed. I'm not quite as edgy. I'm not quite as hurried. I think that's right. I haven't made that connection before, honestly, but I do think that's right. Um, it, it just slows down your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't have as many inputs yeah. there, right? You don't have as much pulling for your attention. So you, you, this, this clearly you're passionate about this. You've thought and prayed and researched this and, and thank you for all of this. But are you, do you ever notice in certain seasons of life, certain times of life where it's like, ooh, this could either be you personally or just anecdotal evidence that you have. Are there certain seasons where you go, okay, this is going to be a little bit more difficult. This is going to be a little bit easier because it seems like we all have these ebbs and flows. Do you notice yeah. any trends there? Any, anything for us to watch yeah, out for? Totally travel okay. for me. Uh, travel's really tough, right? Because you kind of got to be on your email at all times, checking flights, checking all stuff, and then you get distracted by some problem at work, whatever. Um, that's a big one for me. But I'll tell you what, I think a lot of us use seasons as an excuse, right? Uh, Carrie Newhoff says if something um, 
if, if you're always busy, it's not a busy season. It's your life, right? Yeah, right. And there's a lot, right. of, a lot right. of wisdom to that, right? Um, so honestly, like, I don't know. The, the, the practices that I'm advocating for the book are not things I started doing last week. They're things I've been doing for years, right? And they're pretty simple things that are always a part of my workflow that just keep me on the track of being, as I say in the subtitle of the book, purposeful, mm -hmm. present, and wildly productive, mm. right? If I can add a fourth P, all while being peaceful, right? Yeah. Like that's what we all want. Yeah. And I don't know, like I've found this to work for me and not just me, but now we're seeing thousands of people who are implementing this stuff and having radical life changes. Um, so, so as Christians, let, let me dial this in. Not every one of our listeners is a Christ follower, but as Christians, it sometimes seems like we we don't know how to have a conversation about success and productivity. This whole thing started off. Our conversation started with you um, at my request describing a kind of success that you have had in the marketplace. Yeah. yeah. So help us a little bit with like how 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 can Christians have a conversation about productivity and success without it getting weird? Because I'm afraid sometimes our points of reference for success and productivity are not those who are anchored in a faith with Jesus. Yeah. And I think tragically that leads a lot of people in the church to believe, and I've even been told this explicitly, uh, ambition is bad. Yeah, I've heard that. Success is bad. And I would tell you to go read Ephesians 2.10. <laughs> like, Ephesians 2.8.9, which we talk about ad nauseum in the church, we have been saved by faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast. Praise the Lord. Right? We have not been saved by anything that we do. Our status as adopted children of God is secure, regardless of how productive or unproductive we are. But then Paul goes on in verse 10 and says that the very purpose of our salvation, we are created in Christ Jesus for good, good works. That's works, it, man. That's right. That's right. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. And the problem is people people read this and say, well, when Paul and Jesus talk about good works, they're talking about giving money to the poor and evangelism. Yes, they're talking about those things. But this Greek word uh, for good works is this Greek word called ergon, if we can get nerdy for a second. And according to every biblical concordance I've ever read, the word means, ready, quote, work, task, and employment. Paul's saying that the very purpose of your life, the very purpose of your salvation is to roll up your sleeves and go to work tomorrow and do your work with excellence and love and in accordance with God's commands so that you can give your coworkers a taste of That's the it. kingdom. And if you're not ambitious for your work, I don't know what we're all doing. Why aren't we the most ambitious people in the world? Not ambitious for wealth, not ambitious for fame but ambitious to show other people what the kingdom and what our king is like. Yeah, well, you're right back to an, an echo of Genesis. We are totally. made in the image of a God who gets stuff done. And he has said, now you, you get stuff done for That's my exactly sake, for right. my glory. I'm writing a book on this right now. We, in the last 200 years in church history, have truncated the gospel down to Jesus came to save me from my sins. And that's, of course, gloriously true, but that is an abridged version. 
Yeah, this right. No, you're right. Jesus came to make all things new. And the reason why he has saved you is not so that you could sit around and wait for heaven to fall from the sky, although that's going to happen. He saved you to help him till the earth and prepare for heaven to come down for earth. He set us right. He made us new creations so that we can cultivate the new creation, the eternal kingdom of God. And this is so desperately missing from the church right, right. now. I was asked the other day by a group of uh, uh, Christian educators. Why are kids leaving the church in record numbers? And I, I think I was a little harsh because it was like off the cuff. And I was like, yeah, listen, like every time we hear these statistics about kids leaving the church, we love blaming liberals and we love blaming culture. But I blame ourselves because we've resorted the gospel to praying a prayer and walking down the aisle. And when they got to the end of the aisle, we didn't give these kids anything to do. So they're bored. Of course they're leaving the church because we haven't given them a mission to do, but Jesus has, yeah, yeah. right? And Jesus's mission is to help him cultivate the kingdom of God. And I would say the flip side of that coin is it's also the most winsome, inviting picture of what a life with Christ is like. When my non-believing friends go, well, wait, where's this coming from? Well, now you just asked me a big old question. Let me give you the whole answer. But it is so winsome when you are around people who feel a call to, to continue to make a difference in this world. It's a cheesy phrase, I know, but that's what you're describing. That's what we're, we're we are made in the image of an of a difference-making God. Yes. And we are called to give foretastes, trailers. Think of the Baskin Robin yes. spoons. That's your life. Yes. You're a pink Baskin Robin spoon, meant to give people a taste of the kingdom. So when my wife and I adopted this little baby girl a couple years ago, and our neighbor said, Oh, could you guys not conceive? Why did you adopt? We said, no, we adopted because one day Jesus is going to adopt all of his children into his family. Not in an aggressive preachy way, but in a winsome way to say, hey, we're doing this. We're living our entire lives because of our apprenticeship to Jesus. I'm going to work tomorrow and working with higher standards of excellence and rest because of my apprenticeship to Jesus. Does Those actions, the way we live our lives, the way we work, that's part of how the kingdom comes. Okay, so now you've now you've brought up parenting. I've got to ask you, as a fellow girl dad, how how are you how are you envisioning and empowering and equipping these young women to be to be really what their dad is clearly passionate about? I mean, how are how do you how do you do that? We talk about it a lot around the breakfast table. Um, I make sure I'm there for breakfast if I'm not traveling. I'm at the breakfast table with them, doing a devotion with them, talking to them. Um, but I'm also starting to make picture books. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but I, I, I just started, I w we're publishing my first kid's book called the creator in you, uh, on April 19th. And honestly, this is a very selfish project. I'm glad other people get the book too, but, um, it is exactly how we started the conversation, uh, about Genesis one. Cause I've read my kids, maybe a dozen books on Genesis one, and they all follow the same pattern. Day one, God created this. Day two, he created that. Day three, four, five, six, the end. And we're totally bearing the lead of Genesis. The sixth day was not the end of creation. It was the beginning. It's when God passed the yeah. baton to his kids and said, go create and fill and subdue the earth. I, I don't understand why we're not talking about this. And, and I mentioned this before, but this is how we're going to be effective at the Great Commission in this generation.
when we embrace this call to create, when we make culture, when we are relevant to this world, not just boycotting it, not just condemning it, but creating better art and better movies and better businesses that people want to be around that are winsome to the world. That's how we're going to do it. And so how am I talking about with my girls? Yeah. I'm just making them cool picture books now. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I love, again, what you're describing is let's tell more of it. Let's not start the story at Genesis three when everything fell apart. I mean, I love anytime we can tell the whole story. It's just, it's that good. It's that important. Um, I wish you were a little more excited about your projects. I can't help it. I can't help it. I wish you would throw a little more passion into this. Oh, I'm so sorry, listeners. I've got one speed. <laughs> well, let me, let, me, let me ask you this, though. Um, there are people, for a variety of reasons, who get, you know, and this term gets so overused, but they're burnt out. Oh, yeah. And, and I find people will think that the solution for what is going on with their burned outness is maybe not addressing what they're really struggling with and what they're really feeling. I'd love to know, what would you say to someone? High energy, high productivity, high passion. What do you say to someone who comes to you and just just says, I'm done, I'm toast, I am, I, I got nothing. Where do they start, Jordan? Uh, I point them to Jesus's words when he said, the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Um, I, I don't take much vacation at all. Um, I used to, I haven't in the last five years and I am more rested than I ever have been before because I get one truly restful vacation day every week. One day of Sabbath is 10 times more restful than a week at Disney world. Trust me. Right. Uh, (laughs) And I, I think we, I grew up in the church thinking that um, Sabbath was this, well, number one, we just didn't talk about it. Uh, and number two, when I did think about it, it looked like this life-sucking legalistic chore filled with things I couldn't do rather than things I could do. Yeah, and I, I've just really grasped onto, latched onto Jesus's words of, I made Sabbath for man. It is a day to remember that we are free. And it's just been the lifeblood of my family. I have every reason to be burnt out. I work really, really hard during the week. Um, but I'm not. And I've, I, I can honestly say I've never gotten to that place. So that's the first thing I would tell somebody who's burnt out. Number one, embrace the gift of Sabbath. But I'll say one more thing too. Because I don't think we talk about this nearly enough in the church. <sighs> the reality of living in a post-sin world is that some people are always going to hate their jobs. It's like a very ugly reality. But some people are never going to find the work that God created them to do for for whatever reason, or they're going to constantly be experiencing burnout. Go read Isaiah 65 if that's you. Isaiah is giving this prophetic vision of when heaven comes to earth. And he says at the end, contrary to our American caricature of heaven as a glorified retirement home, he says, my people, the people of God will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. We have work to do in heaven for eternity, and it will be 
perfect. It will be blissful. It'll be better than you can ever imagine. And you're going to be doing it next to King Jesus. So look hopefully to that day. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so good and so true. And, and such an antidote to the, you call it the caricature that is simply not biblical about eternity. So, wow, that's just good. That's just such a good thing. And I can't wait for folks to, to jump into this and to begin to to live out these principles. Um, just a few questions here at the end, just, you know, how podcasts go. You get some of the best ending questions. I got to say that. Well, okay. All right. Well, let's go through this. The, the first one is, um, you know, and we, we don't have any hardware yet. We have not come up with a little statuette, but we, we, <laughs> we like this way to go award. And if you're going to give a shout out, we want you to give a shout out to a, a person, an organization, an artist, someone who is, you know, in the context of our conversation, who is actually doing this now, who is getting great things done in the world, who are you nominating for a Way to Go Award? Scott Harrison, CEO of Charity Water. Sure. Scott's, sure. Scott's become a friend over the years, and um, <sighs> Scott doesn't preach too much about his faith, but he is cultivating the kingdom of God in a world where everybody has access to clean water. I've been a donor of Charity Waters for a long time. I'm such a fan of the work Scott's doing. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that's good. That's good. Um, okay. These are the one-off questions here and uh, just give them to us. So one person that has made a lasting impact in your life. Tim Keller. Easiest answer ever. One thing you're loving these days that we should check out. That can be something you're streaming, something you're reading, something you're listening to. Just maybe it's something we haven't thought about. What Help us. What, what's one thing we should be paying attention to? I think Dope Sick. This show that came out on Hulu last year, maybe top five shows for me of all time. And I bring it up because um, I think it's probably the most beautiful mainstream vision for the impact Christians can have working in the quote unquote secular world. So if you don't know the show, it stars Michael Keaton, Rosaria Dawson, a huge cast, uh, but it's all about Oxycontin. And the opioid crisis. And it takes you inside the fraud of Purdue Pharma. And it really focuses on the story of this federal prosecutor named Rick Mountcastle, who is the first one to go and prosecute uh, and try to chase down Purdue Pharma. And he's a serious believer. And they actually made like a really big deal of that in the show, which I was really surprised about. So much so that I chased Rick down uh, the real life rick mountcastle because this is a dramatization uh and got him on my podcast so if you just search jordan rainer rick mountcastle you can hear him talking about his faith and how it influenced that case but go watch the show because it is a masterpiece that will dominate the emmys this fall it's so good okay okay all right great answer um we've been talking about this a lot but but in a specific way what's one way that you're connecting with god these days yeah, uh, for me, it's just my daily quiet time, real basic, nothing fancy. First hour of my day, 5 to 6 a.m., sitting there in front of my Bible and journaling in prayer. Uh, I follow Martin Luther's method of Bible study, so I read scripture and then I respond to it, that specific passage in prayer. Mm-hmm. That's it. Okay, okay. What's one lesson you wish you w- could have learned sooner? It's the lesson I tell my kids every night before I put them to bed. I say, Last thing I tell them, hey, kids, you know, daddy loves you no matter how many bad things you do. And they say, yes. And this is the part that really matters. I say, you 
no, I also love you no matter how many good things you do. And they say, yes. I say, who else loves you like that? Jesus. I wish somebody had told me sooner that the God of the universe who died for me when I was his enemy loves me regardless of how productive or unproductive I am. And ironically, I think when you get that, it actually makes you more ambitious to do the Lord's work, not because you need to earn his love, but because you're responding to the intoxicating assurance of his love. Yeah. Yeah, I think Paul might call that our spiritual act of worship. That's it. That's it. What's one trait you had as a kid growing up that you still have today? Making things, selling things, <laughs> entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur for, as a kid and I still am now. Okay. Um, what's one way that you're moving into this next year with hope? <sighs> Sorry, I'm going to get theological for a second, if that's all right. I've been, I've been meditating a lot. I, we talked about Isaiah 65. I've been meditating a lot on Isaiah 60 um, over the last few years. If you're not familiar with it, it's this beautiful vision of the new Jerusalem and the nations are coming. All the nations are coming back into the city and they're not coming empty handed. They are bringing the works of their hands from this life into the city and laying them down at the feet of Jesus. And the hope is, um, work done in the spirit in accordance with God's commands. Scripture gives us hints can physically last into eternity. We all want to make something that's going to last forever. The Bible says that longing is true, and it's done when you work in accordance with the Lord's commands. Isaiah 60 points to it. Revelation 21 points to it. Work in line with that hope. Our legacy begins now. We're, we're legacy building now. That's beautiful. That's really cool. Jordan, thank you again so much for just helping us, helping us think differently, helping us to consider things that are not only rooted in scripture, but straight up nuts and bolts, practical wisdom for this very harried world in which we live. So I can't wait. I hope our paths cross. I think we might know a few um, common folks. And and when that happens, that's going to be a very cool thing. But until then, Thank you, thank you, thank you for being a part of this. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for listening to a Godzillion and One podcast. Subscribe, share this episode with a friend, and head over to gregholder.com for the show notes. And as always, stop and notice this week the shockingly and seemingly endless ways to connect with each other, this world, and the God who made it all. We'll see you next time.